Let's say a blessing for studying Torah together. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kidshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. La'asok means to engage. I'm trying to reinforce it so I remember. La'asok. La'asok. This week's portion is called Titzaveh. It's um, uh, on page 563 in the Chumash. And this Shabbat, and Titzaveh is all about, especially, how Moses is instructed to make the vestments, the clothing, and the special gear that... Aaron, his brother, will be wearing as the high priest. Uh, and um, this Shabbat is also called Shabbat Zachor because on the Sh- Titzaveh always falls on the Shabbat right before Purim. And so uh, there's a special section added from Deuteronomy that talks about remember what Amalek did to you when you were famished and weary uh, on, on the way out of Egypt, how they attacked you from the rear and took out your, uh, uh, went after the weak among you. And when you get into the land, remember to blot out the name of Amalek. Do not forget. So, um, in other years, like last year when we were studying this, I focused on that section, on Amalek. And because I had done that last year, I'm not going to focus on Amalek in class today. I figured we'd focus on the Torah portion itself. And in fact, I brought a Hasidic interpretation of the beginning of this portion that just really captivated me. So I think we're going to spend much of our time actually studying a Hasidic teaching on this portion. Before that, Bob had uh, uh, Bob Lipgar had articulated a question uh, after class that he just wanted. I just thought we'd address for a few minutes at the beginning of this class. Is it fresh in your mind, Bob? Can you say it? Sure. Um, last week we reviewed and learned more about the difference between um, a literal and. Uh, more scientific reading of the Torah and a more mythological or one dealing with legends. But the question I wanted to raise last week was how do we think about the difference in the Torah between uh, the phrasing of the Lord in terms of the Almighty, in terms of the King, and which seems to me a personification of the deity as distinct from life unfolding. Ah. So I wanted to know, is there some rabbinic tradition about how to balance? Right. How do you talk about both? Because I don't know the Hebrew, but I assume the Hebrew is similar, that it's very specifically personified in some instances and not in others. In that's others. Right. right. That's right. So 
how does how is God named, and what can we learn from all the names of God in the Torah and in rabbinic uh, uh, literature? And it's obviously a big question. Uh, but so I'll, I'll try to give a, a shape and answer to that. The first thing to be aware of is that. Um, Many metaphors and names are used for God in both the Torah and then expanded upon in rabbinic literature. So that even though the Torah is clear that God's deepest name is yod heh vav which in usage became known, translated as the Lord, but doesn't mean the Lord. yod heh vav we don't know what it means which is why I translate it as life unfolding, because that's a pretty good guess based on uh, how the Torah wants to describe it. So, but yod is not the only appellation by any means that God is referred to in the Torah. God is referred to as El Shaddai, which gets translated in the King James as God Almighty, but doesn't mean that. We don't know what Shaddai means. Um, so, again, I think some of our understanding of God's name in the Torah is conditioned by how it was originally translated into English, if you follow what I'm saying. Um, but these are still personified names. Uh, there's, um, uh, but then there are some names that are not personified in the Torah, like Makor uh, HaChayim, the source of life. That's in the Torah. The Elohei Ruchot Kol Basar, the God who gives breath to all create all creatures, um, uh, and then of course there's the name Elohim, which gets used all the time, which we translate as God, which is a very strange word because it's in the plural in Hebrew. So I've, so even though, because the Torah is a story, because we human beings relate to stories, and because we relate to, we are in relationship. So we give God an identity so we can relate. You know, only the philosophers um, try to depersonalize God to an extent where they say, God forbid you should give any um, uh, human attributes to the divine. And that kind of God appeals to a certain very narrow slice of humanity. Um, and I don't say that pejoratively. I'm saying that there are those who are, are, are just the philosopher types for whom God is something to contemplate and strip away until you're, strip away all possible human attributes or adjectives we associate with something that can never be described and that's really what God is. And that's not my thing. Personally, I need adjectives because I'm a lover, right? I'm, I, you know, and so for me, I want to talk to my lover, the God, the universe. So um, rabbinic Judaism and has many, many different adjectives, different appellations for God. Some are personal. Some are very cosmic or un, completely non-personal. So what does that say about how our ancestors viewed God? Well, life unfolding seems to me very non-personal. I invented that. Oh, you invented it. <laughs> yeah. It's got a trademark. 
from tra- tra- yeah, tra- <laughs> copyright. <laughs> I, I, I came up with life unfolding because when God is at the burning, bu- when Moses is at the burning bush and says, okay, if I go to Pharaoh, who shall I say sent me? And the voice says, I am becoming that which I am becoming. Tell Pharaoh that I am becoming sent you. Good. Okay. So at the, I said, let's give that a name. I am becoming that which I am becoming. So what if we called God life unfolding? And that was just a beautiful phrase that came to me one day that, that speaks to many of us at this moment in culture and time. Because I want God, I want, I want the God of the Torah, and I want the God is like a ro- the God word is like a roadblock for almost everyone I know, and so I wanted to I wanted to get around the roadblock so we could keep talking about this mystery uh, rather than rejecting God. But as a lover who wants a relationship. You still feel you can relate to life unfolding? Uh, no, sometimes uh, th- sometimes I change names. Okay. Right? All right. Um, we, the Jewish tradition invites us to offer multiple names to the one that cannot be named. Islam is the same way. That's they have the 99 names of God. Because how are you going to give a single name? And as I've said before, if we're dealing with a relationship with the infinite which in itself is a paradox. Because that which is infinite has no boundary, and how do you relate to it? Well, you relate to it by giving it an identity, but you need to hold that identity loosely. And one of the ways our tradition does it is by assigning many, many names. Because infinite means without limit, and to define is to literally give limit to. A name is a definition. It's an, so, so, there, so we are dealing forever with a paradox of trying to name the unnameable. Right. Okay. And that's, a, that's one way to approach that question. You spoke about the different names that appear in the Torah. Torah, yeah. <clears throat> but the, we practice rabbinic Judaism pretty much, not, and <clears throat> What, they must have had discussions about this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, rabbinic Judaism, as is its want, doesn't, cannot, in its, in its raison d'etre, cannot negate any name of God in the Torah. So it makes up more. <laughs> uh, um, Hamakom is one of my favorite rabbinic names for Judaism, it, for God, which is the place. The place, Hamakom. Um, Hashem, the name. Um, uh, Shekhinah, the indwelling presence. Um, and uh, I'm drawing a blank. Ein uh, Sof, which means literally without end. Um, and they just, you know, and so if you look at our prayer book, and you read in the prayer book, in the English translation, you'll note that regularly, in small caps, as opposed to the regular lowercase, in small caps, there will be 
50, 100, 150 different adjectives and names inserted each time God's name appears in the Hebrew, yod heh vav That was an inten- obviously intentional by the editors of that book to rather than give God a static English appellation to keep us on our toes. So I consider that, I really love, it, it's a mixed experiment, right? Is it successful, is it not? It depends, but I really appreciate the impetus behind that to kind of um, smash, to be an iconoclast, to smash the idols we've made out of words that stop us from recognizing that we're addressing the unnameable. Uh, but because we're human beings, our form of communication is an address. And, uh, you know, you know it's, like, it's like when you say, I love you, world, it's like, what does that mean? Because we need to say it, right? And another way that the rabbis expand on the name is through adjectives. Which means, may you be praised, elevated, magnified, glorified, sanctified, uh, beautified, your great name that is La'ela, mean kol birchata, that is actually beyond any blessings or words we could assign to it. So that's the Kaddish. So clearly the rabbis understand the, the, the sort of the folly and the strangeness of trying to name while we yearn to name our lover, right? Uh, that's what the religious impulse is. So again, language is both an impediment and the only av- and the avenue we have collectively in addition to dance and music <coughs> and art, you know. Uh, It's an impossibility. Yeah. It's a paradox. Yeah. And that's what we're stuck with because all we have is language in order to communicate our amazement, our love, our glory, our... And there we are. So that's why I think, I think I'll, I'll wrap that up around with the Kaddish because the Kaddish is the most familiar prayer and after all the praises in the Kaddish, magnified, sanctified, exalted, glorified, it says, La'elam in kol birchata you're actually beyond any blessing or song we could sing. Yeah. Anything that could be uttered here in this world. And may you, the source of peace, that's another name of God, Shalom is a rabbinic name of God. God's name is Shalom, which I think is beautiful. Uh, um, and then the Kaddish ends saying, and may the source that is beyond the beyond bless us with peace. You know, the Kaddish. We got to study the Kaddish some more. It's an amazing prayer. Um, thank you for asking that, Bob. So now let's look at Tzavet. Let's read the first few verses, and then I want to take our time with this Hasidic teaching. So we're going to take an excursion into a, into a Hasidic teaching today. Ve'ata Tzavet, and you shall instruct. Tetzaveh is the same root as mitzvah, right? Uh, et, uh, you shall instruct the children of Israel to bring to you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting, for kindling the lamps regularly, or the Hebrew word tamid. Here's the word in verse 20, la'alot 
Ner Tamid. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Ner Tamid? Yeah. It's the light over the ark in every synagogue. The, we call it the eternal light in English. So this is where the word Ner Tamid comes from. Uh, um, sin, after the temple was destroyed, synagogues started having a light to remember that the priests would keep the light perpetually burning. Now, it says regularly because it appears in this sentence that it actually was lit from evening to morning, not perpetually. So, tamid would mean, in that case, regularly. Um, Aaron and his sons shall set them up in the tent of meeting, outside the curtain, which is over the ark of the pact, to burn from evening to morning before yud Vavve. This shall be a rule for the children of Israel for all time, throughout their generations. Ladorotam. So it's bringing light into darkness. So the light is burning during the dark. The light is burning during the dark, and that's another reason I want to uh, share this teaching with you that I'm going to share. Now, one interesting feature, which I'm going to just note here, is that some of you may remember that this parsha is the only portion in the, in the latter four books of the Torah after Moses' birth, in which Moses is not mentioned by name. And so the, 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 the interpreters have a great time with this, saying, why isn't Moses' name mentioned? And they come up with some beautiful reasons. Uh, uh, the main thrust of their reasoning, of their interpreting, is that... Um, Moses is instructed to take his brother Aaron and make him the high priest. And so the, rab- the, the Midrashim tell various versions of a story that basically either that Moses had to... Mo- Moses was not the one who was going to be the high priest. His brother was. His brother, once, the, once Moses came down with the law, his brother was going to be the one to get to go into the Holy of Holies all the time, and not Moses. And uh, was Moses, were Moses' feelings hurt? How did Moses feel about this? Why is Moses' name not mentioned here? And really, the Midrash goes on an excursion into the relationship between the brothers, because that's such a strong theme in the Torah, and also that Moses' humility which is one of the, his through points throughout the uh, Torah, uh, said that he was willing to just get completely out of the way in this portion and, and, and have it be about Aaron and not even be mentioned. But there's some beautiful things that are done just through the omission of Moses' name. I just wanted to mention that to you. Moses, Moses. yeah, this is this is God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Right, right, but his name isn't mentioned. But his name isn't mentioned. So that just happens to be an an anomaly in this portion that doesn't get missed. So we'll read a little more. You shall bring forward your brother Aaron, with his sons, from among the children of Israel to serve me as Kohanim, as priests. Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, Eleazar, and Itamar, the sons of Aaron. Make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron for dignity, 
and adornment. Lechavod uletif aret. That's a line in Lechadodi. For those who know Lechadodi, the, the poet of Lechadodi took a lot of phrases from the Torah to make his poetry. And next you shall instruct all who are wise of heart, skillful, <coughs> whom I have endowed with the gift of skill, ruach chokhmah, the spirit of wisdom, to make Aaron's vestments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. And these are the vestments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a fringed tunic, a headdress, and a sash. They shall make those sacral vestments for your brother Aaron and his sons for priestly service to me. They therefore shall receive the gold, the blue, the purple, and crimson yarns, and all the fine linen. And they shall make the ephod, which was some kind of um, uh, garment that was worn across the chest of the high priest because it, it had to hold the, um, uh, uh, you'll see, um, of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen worked into designs. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached. They shall be attached at its two ends. And the decorated band that is upon it shall be made like it of one piece with it, gold, blue, purple, crimson yarns, and fine twisted linen. Now before we turn, well, I just want to say that one of the relationships of the Megillah, the story of Esther, to this Parsha, is that when chapter 1 describes the king's palace and its furnishings, it uses all these words. So somehow, the author of Esther was thinking, was relating intentionally to this description in describing, as they say, lahavdil, which means, what does lahavdil mean? On the other hand, you know, like, lahavdil is like totally opposite how Ahasuerus' royal palace was designed yeah, as opposed to, not for sanctity, but for um, uh, self-aggrandizement. Then take two lazuli stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. And on the two stones make a seal engravings, the work of a lapidary of the names of the sons of Israel, having bordered them with frames of gold, and attached the two stones to the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones for remembrance of the Israelite people whose names Aaron shall carry upon his two shoulder pieces for remembrance before the eternal. Oh, Lizikaron. So there's a different kind of remembrance of Nezikaron, stones of remembrance. I never noticed that before. Uh, so Aaron becomes a symbolic representative of the entire people. That's the high priest's job. It's not, his personal identity is extinguished at that point. And he is carrying on his shoulders. See how the language says, all the people as he goes in to meet the Eternal in the Holy of Holies. He is their representative there. Um, and it's fascinating. I find, I find this to be very interesting. I'm going to summarize a little bit. 
Because then on his ephod, there is something called the choshen hamishpat, the breast piece of decision. And it has three rows, four rows of, three rows of four stones each. Each stone, a different precious stone, semi-precious stone, representing each of the 12 tribes. And uh, was it last week in this class we were talking about the zodiac? And how 12 in the ancient world was the number representing the entire sweep of creation, the cosmic map, you know, which is then recapitulated as Israel being a, a cosmos on, into itself. And uh, each stone has a name of a tribe inscribed on it. And then, within that breastpiece, there is something called the Urim and Tumim, which are these oracular tools. We don't know what they were. Um, we don't know exactly what Urim and Tumim means. Some, some, some interpretations say Urim comes from light, or, and Tumim comes from Tamim, which means um, uh, righteous. So light and righteousness. The Urim and Tumim never get used in the Torah, but in the book of Joshua and the book of Samuel, they do get used, and the king will go to the priest and say, I need to know whether to go to war. And the priest will consult the Urim and Tumim to get a yes or a no answer. It's like some kind of dice, which makes me think about Purim again. Uh, but uh, we don't know if they were dice, but they were some, we don't know what they were. But Yale's, um, Yale University's um, seal has Lux et Veritas and Urim Vitumim. Do you remember the Hebrew letters in Yale's, have you ever noticed Hebrew on Yale's seal? Light and truth. Urim Vitumim. So somehow this passage makes it all the way through the Puritans to um, Yale's... Uh, to New Haven. To New Haven, right. <laughs> Uh, that's just an interesting, another interesting aside. Aaron also wears a sash over his forehead that says, Holy to yud Vavhe, Sanctified, Kadosh Ladonai. And he wears a robe that has bells and pomeg little pomegranate-shaped hangings all around the hem, as it'll say in this parsha, so that when he enters the Holy of Holies, the bells will be ringing so that he will not die. And uh, the Mishnah goes on about that, saying, if the, when the high priest used to go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Mishnah says in rabbinic times, they would tie a rope around him, and if, they, if the jingling of the bells stopped, they would pull him out. Okay, so... Uh, Pencil says Yale, by the way. It has the thing on it. Oh, how'd you get that? I, I didn't. It just automatically appeared. <laughs> so, this all sounds very fanciful to us, and yeah, and even humorous, but if you think about it now, get out of, get, get into a different space. This person's job is to prepare himself to go into the Holy of Holies 
which if you remember last time I was saying, is in everyone's belief system, in that system, the center of the universe, the place where you're going to meet, where heaven and earth touch, where life and death meet, where he's, he's an oracle. Right? Think about non, non, pre-modern and non-modern cultures who have oracles who go into altered states and then prophesy. Right? This is not an uncommon thing. Uh, so for us, again, we have trained ourselves to focus on a certain perception of reality as opposed to, say, the Aborigines in Australia who listen to their dreams as a way of mapping reality or as opposed to uh, um, um, tribes in the Amazon we know about now, who, uh, uh, again, consult their holy men, who are shamans, right? What did you want to say, Gail? Or Martin Luther King. How would you say? I would say Martin Luther King was listening for guidance all the time. And he mm-hmm. How do we discern the guidance from the great source of life? So, th- that's what the high priest is doing going in there and there's a level of danger for those who have either read about or been part of um, uh, sects or groups that do this kind of spiritual exploration there's actual danger in it and the best analogy I, I've been able to come up with for our slice of, of the world is if any of you knew someone who dropped acid and had a bad trip and blew their mind out, right? It's the, when the doors of perception, we seem to have this capacity as human beings to open the doors of perception. And then how do you close them again and return to washing dishes and taking the dog for a walk, right? So you can get lost in that realm. And that's the metaphor and the reality that I think about when I think about lest he die. Um, so all of that's described, and it's pretty cool, in my opinion. Now, in the Jewish tradition, after the high priest, the priesthood is gone, right? After the temple is destroyed in the first century, the function of the priesthood is, is lost. And so one of the things, so people whose last name is Cohen retain an honorary role in Jewish life. But the idea is that we don't have a mediator anymore and everyone, is, as it were, can be a high priest. Uh, when a Jewish person dies and they are being prepared for burial according to the tradition with what's known as the tahara, the ritual washing of the body, the high priest also had to ritually prepare by immersing in the mikvah many times to purify himself before he would enter the Holy of Holies. And then after he came out, he would have to ritually immerse again. And so our tradition long ago chose lines about the high priest being prepared to go into the Holy of Holies as the uh, people who are preparing the body for burial wash and dress that body. So the idea is that we are each a high priest when we die, metaphorically, getting ready to go meet our maker in the Holy of Holies. Uh, It's really pretty profound. So with all that in mind, let's take a look 
at what the Sfat Emet, uh, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Leibalter of Ger, wanted to teach his Hasidim about a hundred years ago and see what we think about it all. Pass these around. Can I just ask you, which passage Please. in Deuteronomy um, is the supplementary? Yes, it's Deuteronomy chapter 25. No, 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 no. Uh, is it 25 or is it Shoftim? Hold on. I think it's the end of Key Take Say. Yeah. It's. Chapter 25, verse 17 through 19 of Deuteronomy. Okay, did we get all around? Yep. So, this is this Hasidic rabbi on some Shabbat around the year 1900 teaching his, teaching his, his Hasidim. And he starts, as is typical in a Torah uh, teaching, uh, with a, a Midrash. He says, in the Midrash, in the book of Proverbs, it says, a candle of God is the soul of man. Ner Adonai Nishmat Adam. Uh, that is a very important line in, in Hasidus, and I'll tell you more about it in a minute. The Blessed Holy One said, let my candle be in your hand and yours in mine. And what is the candle of God? That is Torah. As scripture says, for a commandment is a candle and Torah is light. That quote is, ki ner mitzvah v'torah or. So a candle has been compared to God and to man and to Torah and to commandments. Uh, and what is a commandment is a candle? Well, he's still quoting the Midrash. Whoever does a mitzvah is like one who lights a candle before the Blessed Holy One and gives life to his soul, which is called a candle. A candle of God is the soul of man. That's the ancient Midrash that uh, the Sfat Emes is quoting and is going to continue to talk about. But I want to speak about that a little bit. The idea of the... In, in rabbinic and mystical, Jewish mystical literature, the idea of comparing the soul to a candle is very widespread. And the way they do it most commonly is they say, well, the name, one of the words for soul is nefesh. And nefesh, as an acronym, is ner, ptila, and shemen. Nun, pe, shin. Ner is the flame, ptila is the wick, and Shemen is the oil. So they say, they like to really play with this. You don't, it's not science here, remember, it's metaphor. They really like to play with this and say that what makes us who we are, we're not just the flame, we're not just the wick, and we're not just the oil. Somehow, we're all of that. The, the, we are a manifestation of the oil wicked up through our being and manifesting as a, as a light, which I really like. Uh, and so we are a candle of God. And remember, ner back then didn't mean uh, 
a wax candle, though it, that works too, because the wax is the uh, fuel. Uh, they meant a little oil, oil lamp, that's what they mean. A little oil lamp with a wick sticking into it and a flame coming out the end. Uh, and that's us. And we burn until we, can't, until we can't burn anymore, and then we're extinguished. But while we're burning, we have a job to do. And this is the basic idea, is that while we're burning, we have a job to do, which is to shine that light, to be really simple about it. Uh, and we shine that light through Torah as our guidance and mitzvot as our action. So, the meaning of a candle of God is that God's providence in the lower world is through the souls of Israel. Perush ki hashkachato b'tachtonim hu al nishamot Yisrael. By means of their service, Israel draw divine providence and the light of God's countenance into the world. Okay, so for this we have to understand he's uh, uh, is, a, is, a mis- is, is a Jewish mystical teacher. Right? That's what Hasidism is. And in Jewish mysticism it really goes to town and makes comp- totally primary this idea that we are partners with God. The idea that we're partners with God is a, much, is a much older rabbinic tradition, and you can even take it back to Abraham, where God says to Abraham, Abraham's my friend. I need to let him know what I'm doing. And they have dialogue. You know, God chooses Abraham and then the Israel, children of Israel to have a partner down here in the world through which to manifest the commandments. Um, and in rabbinic literature, one of their most famous sayings is that, you know, look at a challah. A challah is a partnership between the creator who creates the grain and the, the you know, make, allows the honey to be, and the, 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 all of that, that, but humans are the ones who then make it into bread, you know, and make it this beautiful loaf. So challah is the result of a divine human partnership. Uh, and the rabbis are very clear that we humans have the capacity to partner with the divine or to abandon the divine and, and uh, simply serve our own ends, in which case we become cut off from that wellspring, and that is what leads us astray uh, to self-serving uh, behavior. So, um, in, in this case, in Jewish mysticism, that gets elevated even further, even though the roots of it are in, in rabbinic literature too. And that is to say that without humans sh- lighting our lights, God is, as it were, not present in the world. Right? That is the Jewish mystical understanding, that God is not... Hmm? God needs people. God needs people, because... Now we're getting back to what Bob brought up at the beginning. In Jewish mysticism, God loses all personify, all personification. In Jewish mysticism, God is the infinite energy that is the out of which the world emerges. And uh, in order for the light 
of God to be present in the world, God, the, that God energy, that ain't self energy, needs human beings to be conduits for that light. Uh, so Jewish mysticism, interestingly, is a completely depersonalized idea of the deity. Uh, um, overwhelmed by millions of adjectives in Jewish mysticism, but still uh, not a person personified energy. Uh, so it says, God's providence in the lower world, tachtonim, meaning here, as opposed to the elionim, the upper worlds, where God's energy, where, which are the subtle worlds, the energy worlds, where God's energy is already present, uh, is through the souls of Israel. Now, Svat Emet is talking in a time when he's teaching Jews. So he's saying, Yidin, this is your job. He's, we don't have to think of that as an exclusionary statement. We can say, through the souls of human beings. Right? But he was taught, this was 115 years ago, so he's talking to his Yidin. Um, and by means of their service, their service to how, they, how we live our lives in this world, that's how we draw divine providence and the light of God's countenance into the world. There are two sorts of, so you can see he's relating. It, can you see where he's heading? It says that we have to keep, the priest's job is to keep the light burning in the darkness, as Karen said. So he is riffing on that. There are two sorts of darkness. One comes about through the evil inclination and the other side, sitra achra. In Jewish mysticism, the sitra achra is that part of existence or human experience that is completely cut off from appreciation of the glory of creation. That's completely driven by ego. And the evil impulse, the evil, is also that. So in Judaism, that kind, of, that kind of gross darkness manifests when any human or bunch of humans cuts itself off from being of service to God and instead puts himself or itself in service of self-gratification. That's darkness as opposed to service. That's the Jewish understanding. John, is, yeah. is there a Hebrew word that describes that kind of darkness? They call it the Sitra Achra, which is Aramaic, which means literally the other side and is a euphemism. I have a feeling in the Middle Ages that's all they wanted to say about it. <laughs> because again, we moderns aren't, we're in a different space possibly than they were. Uh, mystics today who take these, these kinds of metaphysical journeys do come back saying, we experienced some real darkness out there. It's the shadow. The shadow. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways to describe it, but the, the way they describe it is sitra achra, mm -hmm. which just means the other side. He who shall not be named, I think is what it sort of means. And uh, also the evil inclination, as you know, is the yetzer hara, the, which is our capacity for evil. Um, so, two, so, yes? Finish, and then I have a question. Just saying I don't understand, but go ahead. That is true darkness. But it can be negated by means of the mitzvot, the commandments. 
That is why doing a mitzvah is like lighting a candle before God. It is preparing a place where his glorious presence can dwell. So, you light the light, and there's light. There's a place for God's presence to dwell. This is all metaphorical. Um, what did you want to say? I, there's something I realized as you're speaking, and I never thought before, but that I don't understand. So, if this is talking about the human realm, then I have no problem. That, that darkness, that's our job to dispel darkness and bring God's... Uh-huh. But if it's talking more broadly than that, then, you know, the birds sing and our God's glory manifesting whether we're here or not, and no matter what we do. That's right. So that's what I wanted to... So, in my experience, mostly Hasidic teachers are talking to their Hasidim about how to live. Okay, so it's in the human realm. It's in the human realm. No, I'm, no question about it. Okay. Right? So the Kotzka Rebbe, in this famous state saying from the Kotzka Rebbe, comes into his Hasidim. He's another Hasidic rabbi. And this, this may be his most widespread known quote. Comes to his students and surprises them with a question. He said, so tell me, where does God dwell? And they say, Rabbi, that's easy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with God's glory. Like the birds are singing, right? God's everywhere. And he says, no. God dwells where we let God in. So they're both true, right? But you, you can get right away what he's after. It's like if you don't become an agent of God's light, then God isn't going to dwell in, in, in the world where? Your world. And your soul. Right? So if you let God in, God's present in you. And so that's the paradoxical answer. So no, the Hasidic Rebbe's talking to his Hasidim. We're talking, saying, how do we let the light in? In the time of darkness. Not, and that's the, that's, that answers your question, yes, right? Yeah, thanks for asking it. Um, Kotzko Rebbe, the Rebbe of Kotzko. And he says, no, you got it wrong. They've got it right, but not what he's trying to teach them. That God isn't present unless you let God in. And we know that's true. Because you can, you can be the most glorious sunset, and if you're in a funk, it's not going to penetrate your darkness. And if somebody else is in the darkness, the only way to penetrate is by us somehow sharing our light with them. And that's what this is about. And the mitzvot, don't think of them in their sort of coarsest sense. Oh, I'm, not, I'm eating kosher, I lit Shabbos candles. For the Hasidim, each mitzvah is a behavior that you fill with your light. Right? Whether any kind of act of loving kindness, any kind. So that's what he means. Mitzvot are behaviors. Torah is guidance, and mitzvot are behaviors. Yeah, the light of Torah and the light of mitzvah. And they're supposed to interpenetrate each other. So I'm confused. Yeah. I'm confused because God is infinite. That's right. But, but God does not exist for you unless you let him in. Isn't that, isn't that confusing? Yes. Yeah. So that it becomes your personal God. The infinite becomes your personal God. Beautiful, beautiful. The infinite God is a theory until... You've let that in. Yeah. And then it's an experience and a relationship. 
oh, I've been given so much, I need to give back to the world. You know, then God becomes something in you, as opposed to an idea of infinitude out there. Yes, and in modern language, that's called the God of transcendence and the God of imminence. The God of transcendence is the glory of the universe, but the God of imminence is the one we let in, which means within us. Yeah. I can see why some people decide to be holy people and they take themselves out of the world to just sit and contemplate. Because, you know, if I were to think that I, at every moment I have to let God in through my good behaviors, I, I never get anything done. <laughs> I mean, you no, do it all the time, though. I do it all the time, but it, it, it but not every Don't think moment. good behaviors. Good was the wrong word. Yeah. Through my behaviors. Through my behaviors, right. But sometimes I have behaviors that are not. Right. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Yes, yes, in the largest sense, but for us, God isn't, for us and the people around us, if we aren't shining our light through our being and our activity, then God, as it were, is not present. Right, so that's why, you know, that, if you really wanted to follow that every moment, you'd have to just go sit someplace and be holy. Or uh, sure. So, <coughs> Diane is. Exp- but because we're because we're carnal beings, even the most the most holy person still has appetites, still gets distracted, still gets jealous, still wants that food. Still, you know, it's like so. No, this is the game here, in the land of light and shadow. This is it. Uh, where you choose to do it is up to you. Um, but I hear you. Yeah. Um, the way I, in my own vocabulary. Anne has the same problem. Anne has the same problem. You two should get together. Uh. I thought you were so unique, Diane. So I just want to say, at this point in my life, using my language, I, I am, I'm in a nice, I'm in a good place in terms of clarity because, because it could change t- tomorrow, you know, but because it feels to me like my job is to love and to practice practical love with everyone I contact. And then I have, I get tired, I get cranky, um, I get upset, you know, but my mission statement feels clear these days. And it's actually very energizing for me. It's like, because it's good to have clear instructions. You know, the doing is hard, but the instruction is clear. And that's why I think I'm relating to this so much right now. This is it. This is the job. I think once I'm out of my young adulthood and all of my need to prove myself and establish myself and figure it out, and, I, and now in my, whatever this period is. <laughs> yeah. Middle age. Late middle age. Um, deep into middle age. <laughs> I, I feel like um, uh, those the, the, it's it's clearer for me. Mm, I, I just uh, God willing, you know. Uh, uh, yes, yes, Bob. Well, ask her first. Okay, Anne. Uh, isn't all of us sitting here studying a mitzvah? Yes. Look what we're doing. Yeah. 
we are trying to bring the light forth and set the and give each other the context and the Torah. This is Torah. Torah is supposed to give us the guidance to do mitzvot. So that's why Torah study is such an important commandment. You know, because the rabbis will always say, what's more important, studying Torah or good deeds? And uh, they, they don't have a, a single answer, right? Because the answer is, well, one says good deeds, obviously. They said, no, Torah, because Torah leads to good deeds. And they don't, they don't say he's right. Or <laughs> they just say, yeah. Yeah. This is so Jewish. It's so <laughs> yeah. It's such an emphasis on living and doing yes. and being yes. there. It's now that leads, of course, to another question, which is probably we can't get into. But comparative religion. I wonder, is there anything so central, or any part of this expressed? in some of the other religions. Absolutely. Because this is so emphasized right. to, to light the candle, to be, to do, to do... Light that candle. That's right. Uh, and in Hasidic teaching, it's not just lighting the candle, it's the awareness you bring yes. that allows the light to shine through your actions. All right. So the beautiful thing about Hasidic teachings is it's not just a um, functional, you know, in, you can't follow the instruction book and let the light shine. You have to be there. be there and let it shine through your deeds. So you can be a candle to God. And that's why I love that metaphor so much, because God is the oil, we're the wick, and the flame burns depending on how well the wick is wicking up the oil. Right? That's why I like that metaphor so much. But yes, other religions have their own versions of this, but I would be so bold as to say that this is a real emphasis of Judaism. I think so. I think so too. I think so too. Um, uh, in some old Yiddish text, the printer has stamped an image of a scroll, and directly next to the scroll is either a candle or an oil lamp. Right. Oh, so oh, yes. that would be a direct um, visual. Thanks, Velva. That's a direct visual expression of this well-known Jewish metaphor. Mm-hmm coming from the book of Proverbs. Um, uh, Pauline, then, then Anne, then Esther. I, I was just going to add that, um, you know, you have your framework of just loving, but in two things, in terms of this, I, I like the idea of godding. As godding. A verb, godding as a verb, that, that while we can't all behave, you know, that, that to me, if I turn on you know, so, you know, how, how do I do God's action in whatever response or reaction or act that I'm about to do? It changes the channel. Oh, that's beautiful. So was that Reb Zalman's coinage? The guarding was um, David Cooper. David Cooper. God is a verb. God is a verb. So I you want to, instead it. of whenever we say the word God, which is so fixed mm -hmm. in our culture, Use it as a verb, godding. godding. I like so, that. I like that very much. You know, it's a, oh, love is for me sometimes so overly used, and we love on so many levels. Uh -huh. But as soon as I put God into the formula, I find that my ability to respond is completely. That's brilliant because that also in English, 
uh, allows us to keep this this idea of us as the we are each a candle of God. We're Godding when we when we're letting God into the world. We're Godding. I like that very much. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pretty one. And the, the only other thing I think often in discussions like this, and it, it's often a um, place that can get trip, it trips me up sometimes, is that if we're talking about something as a spiritual understanding of living life or as a spiritual um, explanation of some Jewish aspect of our life, and if it gets confused with the theology that we're trying to put together in our heads, uh-huh. often becomes a tripping or a stopping place that, you know, there are times for theological discussions, you can have them, but a lot of times in Torah study, it's not really looking for a theological framework. You can go to the books of the philosophers, you know, the history of religions and all that, that there's something else that's trying to happen and transform itself. Right, right, right. We can get tripped up by, wait, what did you mean? I meant... Like, how does that work? That's too paradoxical. That's, that's too, you know, what do you mean God said with it? So right, right, right. Thank you. Pointed, so. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Anne? Um, my uh, husband was uh, brought up by foster parents, and they were Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant, and they used Whoa. to bring him to church. And uh, he told me once, I remember, that they used to sing this song that he loved, and it was, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, right. let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine. It's my favorite thing. songs. Yeah. I mean, it's the same it? thing. Don't we all know it? And it's yeah. Isn't that the best song? Yeah. yeah. So that's another expression of this same uh, almost uh, compelling metaphor that we keep coming up with for what it means to bring light into darkness. Um, Esther and then yeah. Helen. I, I was thinking about uh, Wordsworth, and he was a pantheist, and um, he, could, you know, he wrote to see the universe in a, in a, in a, in a flower. And I was thinking that that's really what it is, to see the universe, to see God mm-hmm. in things of beauty, in things that move you. Beautiful. It's God's hand in that. Beautiful. That's another way to awaken, to, your light burns brighter at that point. You, the oil starts flowing, you know, the, the, it gets, you get lubricated with God then. Yes. <laughs> juicy. 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 Yeah, yes, it gets really juicy. juicy. Yeah, thank you. Helen? You know, this this um, discussion about mitzvahs reminded me of uh, something, I, f- I kind of forgot this. <clears throat> I have two granddaughters, twins, who are Lubavitch, raised in Lubavitch, and they go to yeshiva. And last year they were, uh, I guess about 13 or 14 when this happened. One of, the, one of my granddaughters said that they're going on a class trip to this wonderful trip. And I thought, oh, you must be all excited, and Sarah must be excited. She said, no, Sarah's not going. I said, why not? You know, the whole school is going, the whole grade, the whole. And she said, well, she didn't earn it, and, and she's not going. Well, to earn it, apparently, when I asked her what was going on, she had to, you, you had to do a certain number of mitzvahs to earn to go on this trip. And she didn't do them. 
and they said what the kind of what you could do. What what they all know what mitzvahs are. take going to visit a sick person, whatever it might right? be. Right, all those beautiful. There's so many and, beautiful and, mitzvahs. And she told them she's even if she does a mitzvah, she's not counting them because you can't do a mitzvah if you're doing it to earn something. That's right. It says in Perkevot, if you do a mitzvah in order to earn a prize, you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. And yet, that's how you train kids, right? So I, But she already was trained in both ways. She knew that. How did she know that? They must have also explained that. They also that. explained that, that so you don't do it that, for reward. On the other hand, you know, so it was really like... Um, in the end, some other teachers in the school apparently spoke up, and she said the last minute that they said she could go, but she wouldn't go. Wow, I like this girl. I remember in third grade wow. at J. Were you done, Helen? Yes. What? Did you want to say anything else? No, I'm just, Thank I'm just you. reminded me. What's I her name? That. Which girl is that? Uh, the one who didn't go is Sarah. Sarah. Sarah will go far. In, in yes, she's going to go far. We, had, we, I don't know. we used to be given these trees, these empty trees, and we go and get people to give money. And you put the, the coins in the trees. Yeah. So we could throw the trees at Israel. And they used to give out prizes. And in third grade, I realized, because I studied Pirkei Avot, that this was wrong. And I wrote a letter to the board of directors. You are the best. That's great. They have to stop giving prizes for JNF because what are you teaching? And when I was a boy, all I wanted to do was win. I just wanted to win. So I feel like I I just wanted to win, and I was devastated if I lost. And I'd say that I have channeled that drive into doing a good job on everything, which I think has been a very good way to sublimate my desire to get A's all the time. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. That's just great. From generation to generation. Which is to say, when Passover comes, there are, when you try to teach the Passover story, there are four different kinds of children. The one who wants to know it all, the one who doesn't care, the one who will follow you. And you have to figure out how to teach to the, to the student. You really do. I, I, that's what that's making me think about. Yeah, yeah. Did I see another hand, Gail? I, I, I don't know, you're not going to know the answer to this probably, but I am curious how it was attempted to, you know, rationalize those two ideas for her. Uh, you mean for, on the school's part? Yeah, well, whether well, anybody you know, tried. Well, apparently all the time, um, when they reach a certain age now, let's say when they were sixth grade, seventh grade, they, that's part of what they have to do mitzvahs. That's, that's the, the curriculum. curriculum. That's that the is curriculum. the curriculum. Because I'll go over there and somebody, one of them won't be home. Where? Oh, she's over. Over there's a lady with two little children. She's going over there to help. That's her. That's what, uh-huh. you know. And they have to do these mitzvahs and right. things. And I, I kind of think, in a way, it's good. You know, it, it's is it a mitzvah if you're doing it because you have to do it because the school says. And mitzvahs, or or else, mm-hmm. or are you, you know? Right, and I, that's. I don't know. They're trying to train the, the, the children in some way. Is it the, all the children or just girls? It's all the children. All the children. Well, oh, I, I don't know what goes on. I have a grandson, their brother. I don't know what goes well, on. They're in different classes. They're not in the same. Class. That's no. beyond my understanding. No. What goes on? Beyond my pay grade. So, <laughs> however, to Chabad's credit, 
They are teaching their kids about doing mitzvahs. Yeah, and okay. that's the curriculum. And behind it all is loving God. And, you know, we, we ha- there are many legitimate critiques of the context in which they do that in terms of the modern world. But the way they do it, it's enviable. But I still never understood when they used to go, or they still do go, in the van. That's a different story. But that's a Yes, all I was doing was, hey everybody, I was just saying one nice thing about Chabad. Give me a chance here. They deserve it. Credit where credit is due. When I say the problem with the, when I say, and I don't want to spend more time on this right now, when I say the problem is with the context, that's my problem. In other words, the context is too limited for me in the 21st century because they're concerned with uh, the in-group and not particularly concerned with the out-group except as it pertains to making sure the Jews don't get mistreated. So, but I don't want to go there right now. I wanted to say that that's a good story. But those children do internalize the idea of mitzvah. I don't. Think that's what I'm saying. Who else? Where else do you see that? They're getting moral training in action. Yeah, but I, and so the school takes credit. They're getting for that. rewarded for. Pardon me. Told to you know this is what we do. Right. That's it. No expectation. I found a wallet in a cab, and I made sure that I tracked the man down. He's a lawyer at a big law firm. He sent somebody over. He wanted desperately, he wanted to give me money to thank me for making his life. And I said, you're crazy. I said, I won't accept it. And so I gave the guy the, the, the wallet back that he sent a messenger. And about a few days later, I get a gift certificate from Zabar's. <laughs> That's right. You know, that was cool. That's how know, it works. But, you know, that was up to him to do it. I said no. So? You know, but the thing uh, is, is that why, you, why would I, you know, do a myth, why would I do something like that and expect something, you know, like a prize? And you a, have such a, you, you, know, have, you have such a good moral foundation. You know what I mean? I'm not saying I'm, I'm I get, I mean. Right, you're not teach, saying why it. Why do they teach that in a way where, where your granddaughter, you uh, and. Because if I was in that class, I would be doing 500 mitzvah when I was 12 years old. And I would have gotten the prize. But Anne, then you grow, but Anne, then you grow up, and you, you have your values instilled, and you outgrow it. I did. Um, so I'm just saying, it's not the worst way to educate kids, to give them prizes. So relax. Relax. It's okay. Um, so... Can everyone stay a few more minutes while I zip through the rest of this? Is that all right? Okay. Okay. So, I'm in that third paragraph. There are two sorts of darkness. One comes about through the evil inclination and the other side. That is true darkness. But it can be negated by means of the mitzvot. That is why doing a mitzvah is like lighting a candle before God. It is preparing a place where his glorious presence can dwell. By means of this, you enliven your soul, the candle. That makes sense to us right now, right, in this metaphor system. But the supreme light is also considered darkness to us since it is beyond our reach. In other words, in Jewish mysticism, the supreme light is inaccessible to us. We only get its kind of reflection in our lives. And so we don't have, to, we don't have time to explore that deeply. It's just another, it's another way of describing that which can't be described. The holy books thus refer to it as darkness. 
The more light a person brings about in the physical darkness through doing the mitzvot, the more that one will enlighten his soul from the dark light above, meaning the beyond, the beyond, the beyond. We don't really have to explore that too much. So now he goes to the Parsha. Can, can I just ask you, what is the Hebrew for this, the, the, the darkness of God? What is oh, I'll tell you. Um, mm, but the supreme light, Gam or hell, yonid choshech, just darkness. The word for darkness. And that's like also, the, um, God is also described as a river of light sometimes, but then also as a river of darkness. In other words, when you've completely depersonalized God and God is the Ein Sof, the infinite, uh, beyond our perception, that, but the infinite, that somehow... So through, it's, it's not the same as in, in the void, though. It, it's, well, the void... You know, in the beginning... Uh, yeah, it's the same as the void. Yeah, yeah, it's like the, the that. In, in the Hebrew, is it the same word? No, no, it's not the same word. Thank you. The atah titzaveh, the very first word of the parsha, and you shall instruct. He's going to do a play on this. Bring the mitzvah into the souls of Israel, so that they themselves become mitzvot. All our limbs are really there for the sake of doing mitzvot. That's what, our, that's what the wick is for, to wick up that oil and manifest this light in the world. The Talmud offers two meanings, for you shall do them. One is that whoever fulfills a mitzvah is considered by God as one who had made it or invented it. The other is as though he had made himself. Okay, he's, please ignore those two lines because we don't have time to explain them, but he's making his point with a different wordplay. The two interpretations are really one. It is the remaking or the tikkun of the person that takes place through mitzvot, forming him into one dedicated to God, bless his name. That person is then sent into this world only to do the will of his creator. He himself has become a mitzvah. So here's the, wor- here's the play on words. Titzaveh means, and you will command them, or it could be interpreted as you will mitzvahfy them. You will make them into mitzvahs. So we're not only doing a mitzvah, we become a mitzvah when we are in this space. Our very presence, now think about it, you know people who either regularly or you've encountered when they're in a particularly (coughs) elevated space, just being with them lifts your spirit. What are they doing? They're being a mitzvah because they are fully connected to their purpose as Judaism understands it, which is to be a conduit for God's light. And so that is being a fulfilled individual at that point. And so you not only, it's not just your actions, but your very presence, that you are a mitzvah. Um, That person is then sent into this world only to do the will of his creator. He himself has become a mitzvah. And then he says, this is is like his uh, uh, grand finale, and that's why when we say, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav, whenever we say a bracha, who has made us holy through his mitzvot, vitzivanu, and made us into mitzvot. 
by doing this mitzvah. And so Art Green in the italics, my teacher says, to become a mitzvah and thus to make God's dark light visible in the world through your own very being, that is the purpose and meaning of your life as a Jew. It's a beaut, isn't it? It reminds me a little bit like with Abraham, you shall be a blessing. Abraham, same thing. If you, on another Shabbos, he might have remembered that too. And said, and when Abraham says, you shall be a blessing, uh, it's the same as being a mitzvah. But he's playing on titzaveh, so he's using that language. But I totally agree with you on that. And you see how he connects it to the need to take pure beaten olive oil and light it regularly in the dark. So he takes that and he applies it in a beautiful way to teach all of us what it would mean to do that with our lives. So, that's what I just was very taken with this, and I wanted to share it with you. When did this become, when did it become the eternal life instead of just from night to morning? Uh, that's a good question. I don't exactly know. Uh, perpetual, that's the word I was looking for. Perpetual would be a better word for tamid. That you know it's always going to be lit. And when it became the eternal light, I'm not sure. All right, thank you, everybody.